From Oakland, California, I'm Michelle Zambrano, and this is We Are The Voices Radio. Voices Radio is pleased to present inspiring poetry readings and edifying conversations recorded this past fall and in spring and summer 2020. The episodes included in this series feature the voices of nationally prominent activists, scholars, poets, and more. We offer these episodes in the hope that they will contribute to our listeners' well-being and self-reflection and will heighten their awareness and move them to action. We Are the Voices is a Mellon Foundation higher education and scholarship in the humanities funded project that forges an alliance between arts, literature, and public humanities. We are housed at Mills College in Oakland, California, which sits on the ancestral and unceded land of the Ohlone people. This land acknowledgement serves as just a starting point for accountability and for actions to support indigenous organizations and change movements. This episode is part of our Trans Studies Speaker Series, hosted by Dr. Susan Stryker, the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership. Dr. Susan Stryker is in conversation with Misha Cardenas of UC Santa Cruz about her new book, Poetic Operations, which proposes algorithmic analysis as a method for developing a trans of color poetics. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Susan Stryker, uh, the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership at Mills College. And I'd like to welcome you to the second event and Mills College's Trans Studies Speaker Series this semester, uh, which is a conversation between me and Misha Cardenas uh, about her new book, Poetic Operations, Trans of Color Art in Digital Media, which will be published by Duke University Press in January. Uh, But you can download the introduction now free of charge. Uh, The link will be posted um, in, in the chat. Our event today is co-sponsored by We Are the Voices, a higher learning, a higher education learning project funded by the Mellon Foundation that links Mills College students, faculty, and our broader communities with creative practitioners and scholars working in Oakland and beyond. Before introducing our guests, um, I want to acknowledge that Mills College occupies the ancestral and unceded territory of the Chochino Band of the Ohlone people who are still very much part of society today and for whom this land continues to hold great significance. Uh, I'm zooming in from present day San Francisco, the ancestral home of the Rametush Ohlone Band. Given the tragic history of genocide, ethnic cleansing, land theft, and forced removal, the ongoing practices of settler colonialism that exclude and diminish indigenous life, it's crucial that we cultivate an awareness of our participation in this violence and the ways in which we who are settlers benefit from it. Consistent with our values of racial and gender justice, we accept the responsibility of acknowledging and making visible the college's relationship to indigenous peoples. We offer this land acknowledgement as an affirmation of indigenous sovereignty and as a starting point for accountability and action 
in support of indigenous organizations and movements for transformative change. Um, I would now like to make a couple of brief announcements before we move on about upcoming events. Uh, the first of which uh, is a We Are the Voices event, which will be held Thursday, November 18th at 5 p.m. Uh, and that is uh, labor and the conditions of protest, militancy, representation, and aesthetics with Toby Hazlitt and Rachel Kushner. Um, a few weeks later on Thursday, December 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific time, uh, we will have the third uh, Trans Studies Speaker Series event of the semester. I will be in conversation with Lila Weifer, who earned her MFA uh, right here at Mills College uh, and is currently a lecturer at Stanford University. Uh, we'll be featuring Weifer's latest work, Play and Pray, a two-part multi-channel film and accompanying architectural display that explores the playful impulses, innocence, and underlying violence experienced by genderqueer Black children in the Christian church. Uh, it was filmed in part at the Havens Court Community Church in East Oakland, where Weaver was baptized as a child. You can find out more about that event and other We Are the Voices events uh, on the Mills College Performing Arts webpage, and we will put that link into the chat as well. Uh, please feel free uh, uh, to put any questions that you have for our speakers into the chat. Uh, we will address as many uh, questions as possible uh, in about 45 minutes when the program is over, um, leaving plenty of time for questions. And all right, let's begin. Uh, it is my very great pleasure today to introduce Misha Cardenas. Uh, Misha, uh, uh, Misha Cardenas, PhD, is Assistant Professor of Performance, Play, and Design and of Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she directs the Critical Realities Studio. She is also a performance artist and game designer with an impressive slate of projects, uh, such as the Transborder Immigrant Tool, an app designed to help people navigate undocumented border crossings, the Becoming Dragon Virtual Reality Durational Performance, and Scene Soul, an augmented reality game available on Apple's App Store in which a trans Chicanx warrior princess leads her people north to escape the worst impacts of climate change. Her forthcoming book, Poetic Operations, uh, uses what she calls an algorithmic analysis as a method for developing a trans of color poetics practice that can help keep trans women of color alive. Cardenas's previous co-authored books, uh, The Trans Real, Political Aesthetics of Crossing Realities from 2012, and Trans Desire, Affective Cyborgs from 2010, were both published by Atropos Press. Uh, Misha also co-edited an amazing special issue of the academic journal TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, on trans futures. Her website is mishacardenas.org, and I am so happy to have you here with us tonight. Misha, welcome. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for inviting me. And thanks, Maria, for interpreting. Thanks to everyone who organized this event. All right, well, well, 
I just have to start out by saying that I have followed your work for a very long time. Uh, I think I, I was trying to think when it was, I, I think it was tw 2011 uh, when you were still in grad school and uh, I was trying to put together uh, a conference at the University of Arizona on, uh, on border studies. And I think that's when I became aware of your work. And I'll just say, I'm a huge fan, have been ever since. And, um, uh, you know, I, I where I want to get to in, in just a few minutes is to talk about why I was so enthusiastic about including your book, uh, Poetic Operations, as the inaugural volume of a new book series that I co-edited at Duke University Press, Asterisk. Uh, I want to talk about why that work and that series are such a good fit. But first, um, I'd really appreciate it if you could... Um, uh, help our audience tonight, uh, if, they, if they're not aware of your work, um, understand why I'm so enthusiastic about what it is that you do by just sharing, um, like give us a little snapshot of what the trajectory of your career has been. Yeah, um, I, I can do that. Thank you so much, Susan. Definitely mutual fans. Um, I, I appreciate it. Um, and I'm really honored to be here. Um, so I do have some slides of some of that earlier work, which um, I will show you now and, and say a bit about. Um, okay. So um, I do wanna acknowledge first that uh, I am speaking to you from the unceded territory of the Awaswa speaking Yupi tribe. The Amamutsun tribal band comprised of descendants of indigenous people taken to mission Santa Cruz and San Juan Bautista during Spanish colonization of the central coast is today working hard to restore traditional stewardship practices on these lands and heal from historical trauma. Um, yes, uh, and that context of colonization has been really important for my work and, and is a big part of the book, thinking about decolonizing digital media, decolonizing trans studies. Um, but to start with some earlier work, um, let me, I'm gonna, Keynote, Keynote's funny. That's what I get for using Keynote. I'm gonna skip ahead a few slides, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, Becoming Dragon, uh, Susan mentioned, was my uh, MFA thesis. Actually, I was at UC San Diego and um, I wanted to do, a, I was really thinking about performance art and new media art. I was really engaged with those two genres or mediums. Um, and I also wanted to do a project that was personal, that was thinking about transition and asking, um, thinking about some of the questions that I was being asked about what I wanted to do with my body. Uh, so I decided to do this uh, performance project called Becoming Dragon. Uh, I lived in Second Life, which is kind of like a online multiplayer virtual reality world. Um, lived in Second Life for uh, 365 hours, which was just over 15 days. And I worked with three other artists with uh, Kale Greco and Chris Head and Ellie Mermont to make a motion capture interface for Second Life so that when I moved in Second Life, my avatar would move. And uh, I lived as this dragon that you see in the back, Asdel Slade was my, my name in Second Life. And um, I lived there. Um, Oh, and so you can also see the motion capture cameras in this picture, those red circular things are marker-based motion capture. And with a 
with the VR goggles, there's head tracking. So when I, when I move my head, the dragon's head would turn. Um, I was thinking about a, an avatar that would be non-binary and also thinking about an avatar that would be non-human and call into question a lot of the assumptions that we have about bodies and virtual bodies. And I really wanted to ask, uh, could I live in Second Life for a year and then get my species change surgery? It was speculative, kind of science fiction-y, um, but I couldn't really live there for a year, so I lived there for 365 hours. Um, then in uh, 2018, the Vector Festival in Toronto asked me to uh, ask me if I wanted to redo that performance, and I said, "No, absolutely not. Hell no! You live in virtual reality for 15 days, uh, but I would happily uh, re-perform the poems that I performed as part of that piece." Um, so I did that. Um, called it "Becoming Dragon Redo." Uh, Redux uh, with this updated dragon avatar uh, with more polygons. Um, and uh, the video of that is online if you want to hear me performing those poems or I could show it later in the Q&A. Um, and uh, also the poems are part of my book of the transreal, um, which I wrote after that project. I was thinking about Baudrillard's hyperreal and wanting to reject all of the claims about realness, all of the demands on whether or not I was real or my body was real or my gender was real by saying, yes, it is real and unreal at the same time. Um, and so it's a study of, of the way artists use multiple realities in art, so augmented reality, alternate reality, um, games and poems. Um, so some of my other artworks, which um, I actually discuss in poetic operations pretty thoroughly, um, but I can show, I'll show a bit of that and then we can get to the, get on to the book discussion. Um, so um, when I started my PhD, 2011, which <laughs> you mentioned, um, me being in grad school, uh, after my MFA at UC San Diego, I started my PhD at University of Southern California in LA. And um, uh, after the transborder immigrant tool, uh, which was about safety for people crossing the US-Mexico border, I wanted to do a project about safety for myself and the communities that I was a part of. So thinking about how I could use the kind of technologies that I knew how to make and that I was using for performance, like wearable electronics and sensors, uh, how I could use those for building local safety networks, for really for building abolitionist safety networks. So I was thinking, how do we build safety for queer and trans people of color uh, without relying on police or prisons? Um, because as you, as Insight has told us and so many people know, um, for trans people calling the police often results in more violence. So I wanted to ask how we could build local safety networks using technology that didn't rely on the internet or cell phones. Um, so I made this line of clothes and uh, bracelets and hoodies and dresses. I had uh, wireless transmitters in them. So when you press a, when you turn one on, the lights on your garment would turn on and the lights on everybody else who was wearing one of these garments who was in your safety network would also turn. Um, originally the designs were like, you know, wires and electronics everywhere, but I, I made those prototypes and then I started showing them to people in workshops. I worked a lot with community organizations like Gender Justice LA and uh, Maggie's Sex Worker Action Project in Toronto um, and Strong and Beautiful in Detroit. 
and uh, you know, the prototypes were starter conversation starters, as Grant Kester says about a lot of contemporary art. Um, and um, you know, I used that feedback to refine the designs. Um, I took that feedback very seriously. I was thinking about it as practice-based research and as um, as socially engaged art. So when folks at Strong and Beautiful in Detroit said to me, these hoodies are really cool, but if we walk around with a bunch of electronics, we would just be more of a target. Um, then I refined the designs to be really subtle. So this hoodie we're looking at looks mostly like a regular hoodie. Um, I worked with a designer named Ben Klunkert in Berlin, uh, but I sewed all the electronics into the seam and you would only see the lights when it was turned on. Um, at some of the other workshops that I did, um, this was at the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It was in 2014. And at this workshop, um, a lot of the feedback from people there was, that's cool that you can make a $100 hoodie, but if I had $100, I would buy a smartphone. Uh, and so I, you know, we did a three-day workshop thinking about building local safety strategies. And so I really changed the focus of the workshop to be about, okay, well, what could we do that's low tech or that's no tech? Um, and how we could we practice safety strategies like um, just signaling to somebody, I need to leave right now. Um, or how do we come together and separate in, in public space? Um, and I feel like that was some of the most useful part of this project was people having conversations, some of them for the first time, um, like, would you walk home with me? Or uh, if I get assaulted, uh, can I call you? Um, or can you call somebody for me? Because uh, I don't want you to call the police. Um, so that project um, was 2011 to 2015. It was um, thinking about the kind of work I was doing in the transporter immigrant tool and then um, applying that to my own experience and the experience of those people in my community. Um, I think there's another project that you want that uh, that you wanted to show that I didn't put in the slide. So I'm going to switch really quickly that share screen to this web my website michigardenness.org. Um, one other project that I did, uh, which is not really early, but it was after local autonomy networks. Um, you know, I really took that question seriously about how to build uh, safety strategies, how to build safety technologies that would be low, no cost or that would be free. Um, and with this project, um, Patrice Colors, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, um, was a friend of mine, somebody I was collaborating with in LA, uh, you know, in the same milieu, in the same communities. And um, she said, you know, I, I love this wearable electronics thing you're doing. I wonder what would technology for black lives be? Uh, and I, you know, really thought about that question. I worked with her and a couple other artists and pictured here is Edzy Betts on the top picture. And on the bottom picture is Brett Stahlbaum and Chris Head and um, Patrice, was collaborating with Foremost and some other artists to make a line of clothing that said bulletproof across the chest. Um, and I just took inspiration from that and said, you know, why don't we make those actually bulletproof? So I researched for um, about a year on this project, thinking about DIY bulletproof clothing. 
um, I found that you can get DIY, uh, you can get bulletproof materials for free at, uh, at junkyards by taking them out of cars because a lot of airbags are made with Kevlar. And I made some simple designs for dresses like a tube dress, uh, took some other clothes and modified them to add Kevlar. I was also inspired by Neo Bustamante's Kevlar fashion looks. Um, and in some of that testing, we looked at tires as a way to stop bullets and uh, tires often have Kevlar. And we did some actual testing of shooting these things in the desert. And that picture at the bottom is a bullet that we stopped with a bunch of sheets of Kevlar. Um, and we made this prototype of a, uh, here's that dress again with Etsy and a bulletproof backpack. By just taking a Sawzall, cutting a tire into some pieces and layering them in a backpack because people, especially at the border, often get shot in the back by police. Um, yeah, so I think that I'll stop there. All right, well, <clears throat> thanks for, for sharing that work. Um, and let's pivot now to talk some about how your book came about. So Poetic Operations, uh, as you mentioned, it does um, document a lot of the artwork that you've done um, up until this point. But what I'd like to talk about right now is uh, why it fits with this book series called Asterisk. Um, and for those of you who uh, have any kind of an engagement with trans studies or with trans communities online, a lot of times people will say like trans with an asterisk, kind of meaning trans anything or trans whatever, or, you know, transgender, transvestite, transsexual, tra you know, it's like trans, you name it, trans asterisk. And where that asterisk came from was actually from, you know, um, search terms, like in, in databases where it's like the asterisk will like stand in for whatever characters you entered and then any other characters. Um, and so there is a relationship between like that sense of trans whatever and languages of, you know, computer code language. Um, and so when, when some colleagues of mine and I decided to start this book series at Duke that was about trans studies, uh, we, we wanted to like leave the definition of what trans was completely open. I mean, the, the, so we chose the title asterisk and the subtitle was gender comma trans hyphen comma and all that comes after. So it's like, yes, it's about trans, whatever that means to you should have something to do with gender and uh, everything else. Uh, so that was the idea behind the series. And then when I saw Misha's manuscript um, for her book, Poetic Operations, I just thought, well, this is perfect. Like this is the book that we need to use to launch the series because uh, it takes that idea of the asterisk is kind of a, a, a command code uh, and just just works that idea for all it's worth. It's like, it's just a really beautiful elaboration of how to use what she calls algorithmic analysis. It's like how to, how, basically how to write code for 
living better is what I would say. So Misha, it's like, just like, tell us about your book. Tell us what algorithmic analysis is. Tell us what the main concepts are in your, your, your book. It's like, what, what, what is an algorithmic analysis of like trans of color poetics? Yeah. Um, thanks. Uh, I, I'll wait to read some, read you an excerpt and then, um, we, I'll just talk about it first. <laughs> um, so the book is, so the reason it's called Poetic Operations is because it's thinking about uh, what are the operations or uh, actions or gestures or movement that I see in uh, digital media art by trans people of color. Um, and so just to, from the beginning, you know, thinking about method, I was, I wanted to think more about actions than categories. Instead of thinking about, um, you know, kind of naming things and categorizing things, I, uh, as an artist and as an artist who works in performance and dance, I um, am very interested in actions. Um, I will uh, confess to being quite Deleuzean or inspired by Deleuze and Deleuze's question specifically of, um, you know, instead of asking what a body is, let's ask what a body can do. And that focus on doing and action um, really resonates for me. Also as an activist, um, I feel like uh, I'm just so much more interested in, I feel like it's more generative for me to talk about what we can do than who we are and, and list lists of labels and names. I feel like that, that categorization uh, is a kind of shutting down process. Um, and I think that it's, it's funny writing a book, you know, uh, Alondra Nelson told me once in a restroom that, uh, it took her like years to know what her book was about. And when she said it, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Of course I know what my book is about, but no, no, no. It did actually take a number of years for me to figure it out. Um, because partly I, algorithms is part of how I think. I, I started programming in fourth grade uh, as a kid, you know, little Apple II GS programs to impress girls, which they were never impressed by. <laughs> uh, and then I study computer science and, you know, I make digital art. So I often am talking about code in the book. I think that uh, it's incredibly important for us to understand algorithms as they are all around us and shape our lives, the algorithms of Zoom that are shaping this conversation, uh, the algorithms of social media through which people maybe heard about this conversation. Um, and I think there's been some really important critique of algorithms that I would say is also algorithmic analysis, like Sophia Noble's book, uh, Algorithms of Oppression and Ruha Benjamin. But you know, just like two weeks ago, I was listening to this podcast that I love called How to Save a Planet about climate change. And it's like really smart people thinking about the intersection of climate change and racial justice. And they just kind of offhandedly said, oh, but we know algorithms are racist. And as kind of a joke, but I was like, that can't be all that we think about algorithms. I just refuse to give up the power of algorithms. And so, um, so I started looking at them and thinking about them and thinking about how algorithms are not just code. So I do describe in the book how 
I'm thinking about algorithms, I'm trying to decolonize them. And I understand an algorithm as really uh, like a recipe. It's like a list of ingredients and a set of steps. Like A plus B equals C <laughs> uh, is a really simple algorithm, right? And your ingredients are A plus A, B, and C, and then the operations are plus and equals. And those are, you know, those are characters, those are signifiers that signify uh, an action, something that we do, um, addition in that case. Um, but I think there's also an algorithm for cooking chicken um, or tofu, but let's say chicken <laughs> um, that, you know, has a list of ingredients like chicken, oil, and spices, and um, some sort of set of steps like turn on the oven, get the pan, spice the chicken, put the chicken in the oven, wait 40 minutes, something like that, <laughs> and pull it out. Um, so in that sense, uh, I do try to argue in the book that algorithms uh, don't have to be digital. Um, algorithms were invented uh, by uh, Muhammad Ibn al-Khwarizmi in the eighth century, uh, long before digital technology existed. Uh, and I think that if we think about recipes, another similar form that I talk a lot about in the book is a ritual. A ritual is a set of steps intended usually to appease the greater powers. And, um, you know, sometimes those greater powers can be the cloud and Google. <laughs> um, yeah. So what you're saying in your, your book is that it's like you're trying to come up with an algorithm, a, a set of practical steps uh, to actually create a, a, a poesis, like a, a breathing of life into a space that somehow supports trans and particularly trans of color life. And that you are using art to show how people have actually made things that change how we understand the real and kind of help us move across the real from one register to another, a trans real. So you're telling us how we can actually change the world. Is that what your book's about? I think so. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I think I, so. I'm trying for it to be that. I mean, I, I'll say, um, you know, especially for, since we have an audience of mostly students, I'll say, uh, you know, I started this book eight years ago, I was in grad school and we were reading a lot of queer of color critique. And I very simply was starting from a question of like, where's my trans of color critique? Uh, where's, where's the trans of color X? Um, but as an artist, I felt the like critique was kind of limiting. So I started to really investigate and study and try to develop a trans of color poetics by looking at what other, uh, trans artists of color were doing. Um, and also, I mean, I was really, uh, you know, that was when I was starting local autonomy networks. A really primary question I had was, how do we stop the murders of trans women of color? It's, it's, uh, it continues to worsen every year. The numbers of murders continue to go up every year uh, by, by a lot, by big percentages. And, um, this was soon after Laverne Cox is on the cover of Time and Transgender Tipping Point, it was called. 
And it seemed like visibility was not making things better, but making them worse. Um, and when I'm trying to think about that question about how do we stop these murders, I, I take a lot of inspiration from this organization called the Allied Media Projects, which is a like conference and a set of projects. It's like a mix of artists and activists and scholars. It's really great. And they have these principles. And one of their principles is we try to solve the greatest problems. We make an honest attempt to solve the biggest problems of our day. I like that principle. I try to do that. I try to follow that principle. But another one is we begin by listening. It's actually their main principle. So I was like, okay, I want to stop these murders. Well, I'm going to listen and see what other, what other people have been doing in this sense. And instead of trying to like propose out of the blue some strategy for stopping murders of trans women of color, I'm like, look, let's look at what artists of color are already doing because they're already brilliantly surviving and have been for centuries. So, so let's talk some about a little bit more about these ideas. So, like with the, the the title of your your book, well, so like with the idea of the asterisk, it's like trans asterisk. It's like it's a command. It's like trans, not as an identity, but like as a as a command. You know, it's just like trans what? It's like it's a thing that you do to what? To everything, and that in that tra transing of everything, it's like as in that. Trans is the the logical operator there, right? That's the, the operation you're performing mm -hmm. to everything, to like to the world, to the cosmos, and you're like I said. I think I, I see your your work is like highlighting the work of others and of your own work mm -hmm. to give examples of how worlds have been changed through practices that that people do. But I, I know because I've, I've read your book that it's organized around. Uh, other logical operators. I mean, not just trans, but it's just like it's organized around some other terms. So could you maybe like talk some, a, a little bit more about the, the logical operators that you use to organize the rest of the text? And then maybe like after that, we could like see some examples from your work. Yes, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so, the book is organized around these three operations of cutting, shifting, and stitching. And I started there partly, I, th I think about art and theory both as, as just conversations, as long dialogues, long conversations happening over thousands of years. And I think that what artists and theorists do is look what other people have done and try to respond and add something. Um, and so uh, I started thinking about the cut because of this book, Life After New Media uh, by Joanna Zelinska and Sarah Kimber. Um, and, and it was, a lot of it was thinking about the cut as an operation that we see in digital media. Um, we see it in like photography, kind of cutting a slice in time. Um, but we see it in all other, a lot of other kinds of media. And so the book starts with trying to look, to find the cut in, uh, trans, in artwork by trans people of color. Um, but then I wanted to also propose new operations. Um, and uh, so 
you know, partly I was looking at, like I said, my own work, but also work by other people. So really inspired by Janelle Monet and uh, the beginning of her music video, Many Moons. Um, we see the android Cindy Mayweather uh, shapeshift, basically. She's like an android, just plastic white skin. Then she just sort of touches the side of her head and shapeshifts into a black woman. Um, and, you know, uh, Monet's come out as non-binary and um, I'm thinking about trans and gender non-conforming and non-binary people of color. Um, and so the shift, shape-shifting seemed to me like a really rich operation that I could see in my own work. Um, I wrote the, I made this game called Redshift and Portal Metal, um, thinking about ways that people shape-shift uh, as a safety strategy every day. Um, the way you might, uh, the way that I and I have heard other femmes describe uh, wearing more makeup when they go through a TSA checkpoint to be safer. Um, or all the ways that somebody might shift their appearance every day to try to feel safer. Um, but also I think the shift is really open in terms of thinking also about immigration. I mean, we shift our body from one place to the next, from one country to the next. Um, sometimes also looking for safety or survival. Um, and then stitching. Um, so I tried to make these operations correspond to parts of algorithms um, and, and also, but also to correspond to material processes. So, you know, I was making these hoodies with electronics in them and wireless transmitters in them. And that process had all of these things in it, like cutting fabric, uh, folding it, shifting it in different ways and, and stitching it up. Um, so I was thinking about the material, uh, the materialism there, the material actions and properties of actually stitching, like the way travestis uh, create different kinds of costumes that they wear in performances, um, but also stitching in surgery um, and, and stitching also in, as a way of like all the ways that we kind of bind people together in communities or groups. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really like the way that, um, well, that these, these words that can be very um, concrete, you know, like cutting or suturing, it's like they also work in a really abstract way uh, as a concept, um, you know, and, you know, when I think, or when I try to imagine the way, like, other people sometimes imagine trans people, particularly trans people who have a, a medicalized gender transition. It's all about cutting, right? It's all about like, you did what to your body? It's like, you did what? Um, and that the cut is imagined as something that takes something away. It takes flesh away. Um, but I, I think what I, I feel as a trans person and what I so see in, in your work is that that act of cutting is, is generative. You know, it's like, I think about it like in, in film, it's like when you cut film, it's like, that's how you make the story. It's like the narrative emerges out of the cut in the medium and the way the medium get puts back together. That's how you get from one frame to the next frame and tell a visual story. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just see that kind of sen sensibility of thinking about like, what's it like to live a trans life, a particular kind of trans life, 
the things that we do as trans people are also things that other people do in different ways. And I love the way that you, you kind of abstract these like lived experiences, turn it into this like formal algorithmic language, you know, and then like show how you can like engage in practices that are really about shifting the register of the real and suturing us into um, a, a, a reimagined and reformed, remade sense of what what life can be like. It's just I just find it to use a word from your own title, poetic. It's just like it is. It is such a poetic way of thinking about the world and about your work. Um, but I, I don't want to have all the fun here. It's just like I want the audience. I've read your book. It's just like I, I'd love for the audience to um, to hear a little bit of your words on uh, from the page, and um, and we'll take take it from there. What what would you like to share with us tonight? Yeah, um, I will. I'll start with some of the intro and discussing Giuseppe uh, Camposano's work. Um, let me. I'll go back to my slides here so we can see some of that work. Um, okay. All right. Um, I guess I can play that. Okay, yes. Uh, so, uh, I do. I do like to mention the uh, dedication in the book. Um, you know, I finished writing it uh, during the pandemic, and um, the dedication is for May, Judy, and chosen families everywhere. Um, May uh, is was my foster daughter who doesn't doesn't live with me anymore. But fortunately, we're still in touch. Um, and uh, Judy's my mom, who, who passed away during the pandemic. Um, and uh, yeah, I think chosen families are important. So let's see uh, and hear a bit about Giuseppe Camposano's artwork DNI. Turn your head, and her gender changes. Her exquisitely unruly face, scarlet hair framing her gracefully arched eyebrows is pictured in a shifting hologram on a neon pink ID card. Depending on the angle at which you look at Peruvian artist Giuseppe Camposano's artwork, DNI or De Natura Insertis, a manufactured national ID card, the sex marker shifts from M to T for travesti and the image of his face changes. The work performs the gesture of shifting optics by using a lenticular printing technique. Lenticular prints are used for holograms because they rely on a shifting of the viewer that corresponds to a change of image and can be used to present the illusion of a three-dimensional image. I usually say for audiences here that lenticular, uh, you, in case you're not familiar with that word, is like, um, you know, like 7-Eleven cups or like trading cards that when you turn them, you see the image move or different, uh, it's a printing technique that does that. Um, 
DNI is Camposano's national ID card, a requirement for every Peruvian citizen older than 18, digitally modified to display an image of him in drag with a T gender marker. The gesture of a forged DNI is additionally subversive in that many travestis do not have access to DNI cards. Camposano's project was presented at the 2014 Sao Paulo Biennial. The title of the artwork uses the initials of Peru's Documento Nacional de Identidad, or National Identity Document, and reimagines it with the Latin phrase de natura incertis, or of uncertain nature. Camposano's DNI uses the algorithmic media of identification cards to simultaneously call into question ideologies of binary gender, national identity, and immigration. In Camposano's work, a trans of color survival strategy is made tangible through a poetic subversion of the algorithms of immigration control technologies. The rest of the ID card is intact. From the background image of a vicuña <coughs> as a national symbol for, of Peru to the seemingly random numbers and less than signs. common to passports today that make their data more easily readable by electronic scams. I alternate gender pronouns throughout the text to linguistically represent Camposano's gender fluidity following the method used by Malu Machucarros, who I cite later in the chapter. By digitally cutting and stitching the image of her national ID card with this performative image of her female gender presentation and the letter T, Camposano uses art and performance to gesture to speculative possibilities of subversions of gender regulation. Camposano's shifting and layered approach to visibility is a powerful introduction to the technologies of representation used by trans people of color. Identification cards such as the DNI are digital technological assemblages often using bi-dimensional barcodes and radio frequency or RFID transmitters. Camposano's intervention into them requires studying these technologies and forgery techniques to simulate future possibilities for gender markers and photos on ID cards. The holographic watermark of the word identidad is also present in Camposano's DNI. The Peruvian DNI cards are designed to be read by algorithmic devices and thus they can be understood as a physical embodiment of the algorithms that read them. Camposano's DNI creates a fictional example of counter surveillance strategies that go beyond the visual. Intervening in sensor networks that would read the data on a DNI card to confirm its validity. Algorithmic analysis invites us to look for algorithms to identify the components and operations that make up the process we're analyzing to understand them better, where a process could be an artwork, an identity, or a moment of violence. Camposano creatively hacks identification and migration control algorithms, subverting them through what I call trans of color operations of cutting, shifting, and stitching. These operations are evident from the cutting out of photos of her face to the shifting of lenticular images, the digitally stitching together of images and the elaborate costumes she creates for those images. Cutting's an operation that helps identify the parts of an algorithm, but one should imagine cuts not so much as absolute separations and more as definitions for spaces of intra-action. The parts or variables shift over time. Stitching is the operation of attaching various parts together, which is essential to both intersectionality and assemblage, as I expand on later in the chapter. The identification and elaboration of these poetic operations, cutting, stitching, and shifting, 
is central to my analysis and continues throughout the book. Campesano is reaching here not for simple visibility or invisibility, but for a holographic body that can shift and change with the movement of the view. The emphasis on movement is decolonial as Western modes of knowing emphasize the primacy of the visual over embodied content. Cameroonian theorist Ashila Mbembe has described the optics of our present of our necropolitical moment in terms of hologramization to allow for invisible killings. While Mbembe is speaking of three-dimensional maps of occupied Palestine, the forms of visibility he describes have far-reaching relevance for communities targeted by racial and gender violence worldwide. Trends of color poetics go beyond binaries of visible and invisible, using methods such as holograms that rely on movement more than visuality. In this book, I argue that by using algorithmic analysis to consider artworks that contribute to safety for trans people of color, survival strategies can be perceived. And from these strategies emerges a trans of color poetics, a repertoire of poetic operations. Poetics, whether of language, media, or movement are the observable meeting points of matter and agency. While for Aristotle, poetics describe the essential qualities of a good poem, for the Caribbean theorist Edward Glissant, poetics are an expressive material force that flows with political impact between people and cultures. Glissant's poetic imaginary begins with the cry of the enslaved African person thrown from a slave ship into the abyss. I build on his poetics and return to them throughout the book. The main focus of this book is the poetics of artwork made by trans people of color working in digital media, a body of work that has been under theorized. The artworks I discuss all contribute most explicitly, a few implicitly, to reducing violence against trans people of color by interrupting colonial control of embodiment, modulating perceptibility, fostering transformation and building solidarity. Trans of color poetics can also be seen in the work of artists who do not identify as people of color or as trans or gender non-conforming, whose poetics still increase safety for trans of color communities. An understanding of these poetics can aid work for gender and racial justice more broadly, especially in considerations of race and gender in technology. Um, how are we doing on time? Should I keep reading? Should I pause here? Um, we're, we're fine. It's about 10 of six. Um, we should go into Q&A and interaction with the audience in about 10 minutes. And so um, I'd love to hear more. Uh, I'd also love to hear more about some of your, uh, your current work uh, besides the book. So, but it's, it's your show, Misha, you, you, you pick. Okay. Um, I will, uh, da, da, da. I'll read a little bit more uh, since you're in the next paragraph and then I can show some of my new work currently. Okay. Um, one of the intentions of this book is to expand transgender studies by articulating an alternative genealogy for the field or adding a root to the horizon. Understanding trans of color experience is far older than the word transgender. This book stitches a thread through decolonial theory, women of color feminism, and queer of color critique. Much of the beginning of transgender studies, a field that's been developing in the US Academy for the past 30 years, emerged out of a consideration of the visibility of white transgender people in Western contexts. Sandy Stone's essay, The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto, often cited as the origin of contemporary trans studies, focused on trans women in England and California, still 
Stone cites Gloria Anzaldúa's concept of mestiza consciousness as an inspiration for her idea of post-transsexual. Susan Stryker's book, Transgender History, while very important to the foundation of the academic field, focuses largely on social movements in the US. And it does chronicle many important moments in the history of US trans of color art and activism, including Marsha P. Johnson and Silvia Rivera's organization, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, a direct action organization founded in New York in 1970 that provided food, housing, and support for trans people who had recently been released from jail. Transgender history discusses intersectionality and mestizaje as foundational concepts for understanding transgender phenomena. With the publication of the Trans Studies Reader 2 in 2013, the later formation of TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, and the publications of Queen for a Day by Marcia Ochoa, Black on Both Sides by C. Riley Storton, and Trans Exploits by John Neo Chen, significant effort has been made to expand trans of color scholarship. Poetic Operations continues its trajectory working towards decolonizing transgender studies by focusing on non-white trans people, trans people with ancestry outside of Europe, and people who have histories of colonial violence and places outside the United States and Europe where one can see gender variants beyond rigid gender binaries. Doing so challenges a discussion of the possible uses of digital media for trans justice in that global South countries continue to have less access to the internet. In addition, doing so troubles any simple definition of trans because non-Western practices that are similar to transgender such as two-spirit and travesti rely on ontologies that defy Western conceptions of a single, unitary, separate self. Destabilizing the persistent hegemony of global North countries over people in the global South by destabilizing the terminology through which those people's gendered racialized bodies are understood is a method of decolonization. Trans of color poetics attempt to do this by destabilizing the concept of trans and transgender by including gender nonconforming people such as travestis, stitching together a new poetic formation based in global solidarity. Um, I guess I will just say at the end of that paragraph, um, it, academia is weird. Uh, writing a book for eight years is, is a funny, weird, challenging, unique experience, you know. Uh, I started this book, and Susan's heard this before, but when I started this book in grad school, uh, almost 10 years of grad school, nobody ever assigned me once to read a book by a trans woman. Uh, a, a lot of those books that I just listed were not out. Um, so looking for uh, trans of color studies critique or poetics, um, there was, there didn't seem to be uh, a lot to, a lot to go on. Um, but now the field is, is quite different and, and, and expansive. Um, and I'm, you know, glad to be in dialogue with, with folks like Riley and John and, um, and looking forward to dialogue with Sophia Noble in the larger field of algorithm studies. Uh, I'm gonna jump in here really quickly, Misha, to say I, I just learned from one of our moderators that when you're sharing the screen that the interpreters are not visible to the audience. So I was just gonna ask you to take the screen share down, which you just did. Um, and so, and uh, apologies if I interrupted a final thought there. Um, 
did you have a, a final takeaway? Yeah, I, I'll just say I, I, I share your, your sense of enthusiasm about where the field of trans studies is, is going. You know, I, I remember when I was working with a colleague, Stephen Whittle, back in 2005 to put together the first volume of the trans studies reader. I was going like, I'm not finding a lot of like trans of color work here. It's just like, I guess I'm just like really ignorant. It's like, I need to go like fi find more work. And I ask all of my friends who did like qu queer of color studies and you know, ethnic studies and critical race studies. I said like, where's the trans studies scholarship that like brings in race that other than whiteness that like, I'm not, I'm not finding. And they, my one of my friends who was honest with me just said it's like oh we just read all the stuff that the white people work at uh, you know write and then kind of make make fun of it and dish about it and and you know we haven't written anything ourselves yet and so like, I'm really glad that um, the field has changed a lot in the last uh, fifteen years and that you're you're part of that change. Um, yeah, I just I just find it so intellectually and politically exciting these days. Um, but wh why don't you, uh, before we shift over into questions uh, and audience engagement, it's like, can you give us any uh, previews of coming attractions for work that you you have uh, kind of in the pipeline now that Poetic Operations is in your rearview mirror? Yeah, I can do that. But um, okay, so how do I? How do I share screen so people can see the interpreter? This is beyond my knowledge base. Um, I'm just conveying what was conveyed to me. Okay. Um, well, um, Michelle says we can pin the interpreter. Okay. You mean audience members can pin the interpreter? I guess. Okay, well, then I'm gonna proceed and show some slides uh, briefly, and then we'll come back. Um, okay, so, um, is it, does it matter if I play or not? No, it doesn't seem to matter or not. Okay, um, so briefly, some of what I'm working on now, um, well, since finishing the book, I published this augmented reality game called Seen Soul, which means no sun. Um, it's about um, wildfires and thinking about how climate change induced wildfires are harming uh, trans people of color and immigrants and disabled people. Um, and um, it's, it's largely based on my experience of living through a kind of smoke storm when there were huge wildfires in British Columbia that just literally blacked out the sky for two weeks. And, and it, it's kind of eerie now in terms of, you know, at the, I was writing then about being stuck inside, having to wear a mask when I leave the house and, um, you know, writing about news stories about immigrants trying to escape the fire by running to the ocean because there were ice agents at the shelters. Um, and then just within weeks of publishing it, a wildfire uh, was hit very close to Santa Cruz. That was so large that I had to evacuate my home. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, obviously we're all living through being stuck inside and having to wear masks. Um, but this project is, is on the Apple App Store and you can play it on iOS devices. 
Um, it also, it, it includes poetry. So when you get close enough to this avatar, she does dance movements and tells you these poems. It's a story about a trans Latina AI kind of breaking out of her programming and remembering her human memories. Uh, also my dog Roja is in it, who was in the back of this picture, uh, thinking about interspecies survival strategies because walking her was the only time that I was able to get out of the house during the smoke storm. Um, I think that I will skip the video one for time. Um, we've shown this at a number of museums and galleries. Uh, this is at the Leslie Lohman in New York. Um, and it's currently on display at the Tarbell Arts Center at Eastern Illinois University. So if you are near there, you can go uh, see it. But you can also see it on, on any iOS device. Um, so what I'm actually working on now following up on this, oh, so I also showed it at the Thessaloniki Biennial and did live performance with the projection. But what I'm working on now is a, another augmented reality project called Oceanic. Uh, it's about thinking about how climate change is uh, harming oceans, thinking about uh, sea level rise and ocean acidification. And I'm collaborating with a few other artists and scholars. Uh, Cynthia Ling Lee is pictured here uh, in a 3D video or kind of hologram uh, of Cynthia. Also, Susana Ruiz and uh, Joan Kessel are, um, and Mohamed Reza Babe. Uh, are all artists that I'm working with in my studio, the Critical Reality Studio. And instead of 3D modeling, we're focusing more on, um, I will stop the show there since we saw it. Uh, instead of 3D modeling, we're focusing more on 3D scans. So the, 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 the arch there was a scan of a natural bridge at Natural Bridges Beach that Gloria Anzaldúa wrote a beautiful essay about. So we're taking her words as a kind of starting point for that project. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing the previews of coming attractions. Um, and at this time, uh, if there are people in the audience who would um, like to put any questions or comments into the chat, We'd be happy to entertain them. And maybe while we're waiting for those questions to be uploaded, um, uh, is there more that you could say about the Oceana, the Oceanic project? that you're doing? It's like, it seems like the earlier, the, the um, Sinsol was more about atmosphere and this is more about ocean. It's like, is that deliberate? Are we gonna see a whole like, you know, elements suite from, from you? <laughs> oh, uh, I, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I have in the past like really changed mediums in between projects. And this is kind of a change for me to do a second AR project. I think it's partly because I felt like interrupted by the pandemic. I didn't really feel like Scene Soul was done, but I also felt like who knows how much time I have left or anybody has left. So I released Scene Soul last fall. Um, I just called it done. There's a lot more I, I, I wanted to do with it. So I'm continuing that in Oceanic. Um, but I guess I'll say part of the, there's a, there's a, 
weird, there's a challenge with writing about the future or even writing about the present, you know, like uh, a, a lot of, a lot, a lot of things in poetic operations were recent and I, I mean, I literally had a copy editor asking me last month to update one of the facts <laughs> on that had changed um, in the conclusion, which is reasonable. Uh, uh, yeah. And, you know, with Seen Soul, like I said, it was this very strange experience of writing about people running from wildfires based on news stories and then having to actually do that myself um, was really challenging and weird. And um, with Oceanic, we're thinking about sea level rise and, um, you know, reading, reading uh, books like uh, Rising by Elizabeth Rush or thinking a lot about the sixth extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. And, um, you know, we were looking, we we're looking at a proposal to, a, we, we made a proposal to a museum a couple of weeks, me and my collaborators and I, and it's a museum in New York. And we were thinking about uh, augmented reality envisioning of New York underwater. And then um, literally days after that discussion, uh, Hurricane Ida's remnants hit New York. And then in uh, a whole internet it was flooded with images and video of New York underwater and uh, incredible flooding there. So it's, uh, it's a strange experience to try to be working on climate change or thinking about the future. Yeah. Changes. Real, real time. Um, okay, we do have some questions that have that have come in, and uh, I'm going to group a few of them together because there were there were several that were questions about algorithms. Okay. Uh, one of them was simply, uh, this is from Susan. Uh, what do you mean the algorithms of Zoom? Um, Samir asked, what do you mean by decolonizing the algorithm? And Spencer asks, are you using algorithms and operations in a theoretical sense? Um, uh, uh, or were there specific algorithms that you and others are working on that are helping support, protect, empower trans people? Um, so anyway, so three, three, three questions about how you use that word algorithm and what you mean by that. Great, yeah, thank you. Um, let's see. So I think a big part of this book that I'm trying to do, uh, like I said, is to get, uh, to encourage people that are thinking about justice for trans people of color, thinking critically about race and gender and, and art um, to understand algorithms better in order to be able to use them uh, and protect ourselves from them. So that means that, but also I would say I'm using a materialist approach. Um, so I'm trying to write in the book about, uh, about things, that, things that actually exist materially. So the range of algorithms I talk about in the book is very broad from like the algorithm that uh, there's, a, there's a group in LA called Stop LAPD Spying, which is specifically trying to uh, 
stop surveillance of um, marginalized people in LA. Uh, and that uh, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition found and identified and publicized the specific algorithm that the LAPD uses for their uh, predictive policing. Um, so that algorithm is, is in their, one of their publications and it's reproduced in the book. So you can literally see the equation, like the summer, summation sign, you know, this, this number plus this thing plus this thing, blah, 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 equals a sort of heat number for predictive policing. So that's one kind of algorithm that's in the book. Um, another kind of algorithm in the book is um, actual source code. So for the transborder immigrant tool, um, I wrote, I wrote uh, poems in code. So you will see uh, like actual C language source code. Um, but another kind of algorithm that's in the book is a list of instructions for performance. So the performance I showed earlier in Sao Paulo, uh, that performance followed a series of steps like, like most performance art does, like a lot of performance art does. That performance had a series of steps like uh, when someone turns their hoodie on, come together as a group, whoever's standing in the front of the group starts their gesture, when the gesture finishes, they turn. So there's a series of steps that are outlined in that chapter for that, the kind of algorithm behind that performance. Um, when I talk about the algorithms of Zoom, I mean, uh, the, the, there's a lot of ways to think about the algorithms of Zoom. Um, one is the, the, the code, the, the code that like compresses the video, uh, the code that arranges the squares on your screen in a certain way, um, the code that determines the background noise reduction seems to be a, a thing that is a challenge for a lot of people in Zoom. Um, so there's many different algorithms in Zoom. Um, and thinking about, does the book talk about specific algorithms for justice for people of color? Um, I would say yes. Uh, and it's specifically looking at uh, digital artwork. Um, and so I do look at um, some out artworks that are counter surveillance artworks. Um, but also one of my favorite examples from the book is a, a game, uh, Maddie Bryce's game, Mainichi. Um, and it's a digital game. So there's certainly an algorithm to it, many, many numerous algorithms in it. <laughs> um, but it's basically, uh, Mainichi means every day in Japanese, and it's, it's a really simple video game. You're a little pixel person in a little pixel world, and uh, you wake up in the morning, and you try to go have coffee with a friend uh, without uh, experiencing violence. You have to literally dodge violent encounters on the street in this game. Um, and I do think uh, it is working for it's, it's a game that is working to reduce violence against trans people of color. Right. Um, thank you for that. Um, we, we do have another algorithm question in the chat um, from Olivia. And then uh, Eli has a question about Deleuze. So I'll save Deleuze for a second and, um, and take Olivia's question. Uh, 
Olivia asks, um, is the idea of autopoiesis in Sylvia Winter's work or auto theory important for your work? Can you talk more about examples in your book of how algorithms manifest through a poetic kind of practice? And um, while you're formulating that, Olivia also says um, something about the connections between algorithm as automated decision-making versus sustained operations uh, and the idea of self-determination. Um, which for me links to ideas of abolition, decolonization, gender, uh, seem potentially contradictory, but really interesting. So um, a couple of things there. Is there a contradiction between automated decision-making and ideas of self-determination? Uh, what do you think about that? And what does it have to do with autopoiesis and auto theory? Can you talk about, about, about that in, in your work? Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I think that uh, hmm. I would say that uh, auto theory seems to me like a new word for something that people have been doing for a long time. Um, something that's that's very important to me in my in the book uh, and in my work is uh, Gloria Anzaldúa's writing. Um, and um, you know what. What Anzaldúa did in Borderlands is uh, to challenge borders of genres uh, and to combine writing about personal experience, history, um, stories from her family, theory about how borders work and how race and gender and disability work, um, all to mix up together in one book. Um, so doing that is something that I. I do in the book and it's, uh, you know, I think about it, I talk about it more as practice-based research um, or uh, yeah, like using, using my art practice and, and experiences as something that drives the theoretical questions. Um, and yeah, autopoiesis in terms of um, self-fashioning or self-creation is definitely a big part of why I am interested in poetics as opposed to something like aesthetics. Um, I am interested in, uh, and, the, and the book discusses, um, for example, with my Nietzsche, that game that's about waking up in the morning, getting dressed and going to get coffee. Um, there are, uh, I would argue there are there are algorithms there of daily life. Um, there are uh, you know practices, uh, repeated set of steps that we learn to be safe. Um, so there are algorithms uh, of safety that we use every day. And we have internalized, and we don't have to write source code, and we don't have to write out the steps because we have we know what those steps are, um, and. I, when I talk about the cut, I do specifically talk about uh, Ava Hayward's writing and uh, Ava talking about um, the cut of uh, surgery as a form of expression and uh, as a form of self-expression and self-realization or as autopoiesis. Um, 
And do I think there's a contradiction? No, I don't because, uh, I mean, automated decision-making in software systems that affect our lives, that's one example of algorithms. That doesn't mean there are, there are not a million other examples of algorithms. Um, there's also automated decision-making in pieces of software made by activists to run websites or apps made by activists. Or um, there's also, you know, uh, digital algorithms in digital art. Yeah. Just, just to jump in on that, one of the things I think about um, um, that question about the difference between automated decision-making and ideas of like self-determination, which Olivia says, you know, links to ideas about abolition, decolonization. So like, I think of this like freedom. It's kind of like, is there a, is there a tension between the idea of a kind of um, programmed repetition of something that feels like a kind of bondage, you know, versus like a free space of possibility. And, you know, I, I think, you know, like when I think about questions of habit, you know, that it's like the habit, habits are just things that run in the background and that you then don't have to think about it. And that's actually then what creates space and time bandwidth for doing something else, you know, so that there's a relationship between the, the habit or the routine or the automated decision-making and opportunities for creativity. And then what gets really interesting, I think, is when you can mindfully and consciously change those automated decision-making practices and routines. It's like, that's where the creativity of intervening in the algorithm comes from. It's like, that's where like, you can like, maybe like start to, as you say, decolonize the algorithm by like having it start to repeat a different kind of practice, you know, a different kind of background that enables a different kind of life to run in its foreground. So anyway, those are just my off, off the cuff responses or thought, you know, thoughts uh, on some of the conversation here. We do have another question um, from Eli who writes, uh, in Deleuze's body politic, was it a process of inserting transness within his work to bring about this fluidity of transness and the generative capacities or was this conception of transness already there? So as I'm reading that, and Eli sent another comment, if I'm, I'm misframing that, is that, is it, Misha, are you kind of inserting a trans reading into Deleuze, or are you finding a trans reading already present there that you're, you're bringing out and, and using? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question, Eli. Uh, I would say, uh, no, I think Deleuze and Guattari are really transphobic. Uh, in their essay, Becoming Woman, uh, they make that distance real clear. They're like, no, no, no. We're not talking about those people who actually just dress in women's clothes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about truly molecularly becoming woman or becoming animal or becoming mineral. Um, I think they were clear uh, in their transphobia and their disdain for trans people. So I am uh, taking some of their ideas and, and repurposing them for, I say, a better use. <laughs> I think that um, 
yeah, uh, you know, citation is not always endorsement and, uh, and most theorists are really problematic and, you know, does that mean that we should throw away everything that they said? I think about the way Glissant writes about Deleuze in Poetics of Relation. Um, Deleuze and Guattari in A Thousand Plateaus are just like so utopian about nomadology and nomadism. And they're like, let's just be nomads. And it's so radical. And we'll just leave, leave these homes we live in behind and then we'll be free. <laughs> and in Poetics of Relation, Glissant's like, okay, yeah, let's talk about the Arawak people. Let's talk about some specific nomadic tribes and all the different kinds of nomadism and the problems that might arise there. <laughs> um, yeah. So I do, uh, yeah, that's a kind of long answer to say. I, I don't think that they're talking about transness in the way that I am. Well, maybe to just follow up on that a little bit though, it's like, what is it then that you're finding useful in their work because you you know you you started out by saying it's like oh i'm being very delusian here um you know and you've used words like rhizome that come out of out of their work it's like what what is it that you find enabling there and what is it that you've done with that work to uh turn it into something that you think is useful for your project yeah um well i think that uh, Deleuze, Deleuze reposes a process ontology that for me really resonates with other kinds of thinking like indigenous ontologies. And um, so, I mean, I think that in a lot of Deleuze's writing, everything is process. Um, this chair is a long process, you know, started as maybe sand and I don't know, I guess it's plastic <laughs> and, and mineral and metals. Um, and that were, you know, transformed. They were already long processes creating that sand and those minerals and metals. And they were taken through some process of manufacturing to be constructed into this chair and uh, eventually will be destroyed and crushed and go back to dust or something. Um, and that thinking is really useful to me. Um, I find their thinking really generative. Um, so in the book, I, I like even in the excerpt I read, I think that we can, if we think about things as processes, that gives us a way of intervening. So if we think about like identity, like trans or trans asterisk as a process, and it's not just some like stable thing that we point at and that's true and it's always gonna be that thing. It's a thing that's always been changing over time and it's always will be changing. So what I try to do is to use the, the notation, use the language and ideas of algorithms to get in there and describe a process and break it down. So algorithms are made up of operations. And then to trying to look at how we can use those specific operations like, like shifting or like stitching. Um, yeah. So, you know, stitching is a, stitching is a process. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I mean, much like decolonization is a process. It's not a static thing. It's, 
it's something that's happening in time and uh, over a long period of time. And that requires us to think about past, present, and future at the same time. Just like abolition requires us to be able to imagine this abolitionist future so we can work towards it. Okay, cool. Um, uh, are there any more questions from the audience? Okay, we're, um, Josh has been putting questions up on the, uh, a Google Doc for me to be able to look at since I can't see uh, the same screen that the audience sees and I'm not seeing any more questions coming in right now. Josh says, nope, no more questions. So uh, we need to start wrapping up in just about mm, two, two or three minutes. Uh, Misha, are there any final thoughts that you would like to offer to the audience about your work? Um, or anything else? It's like the floor is yours. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I think that um, a, big, a, a big impetus for me for this book, like I said, was to think about a trans of color poetics. Um, as kind of an alternative to trans of color critique, really looking at queer of color critique and trying to do something trans of color. And, um, you know, I will say for all the students out there that uh, I, I was pretty discouraged from doing this work in grad school. And, uh, you know, I definitely at times was told that it was identitarian, that I should move on multiple times while I was working on this project. and. Uh, it, it took a lot of persistence. And I remember when I talked to Rod Ferguson about it at the ASA, just like in a Q and A after some panel he was doing, he was really encouraging. He was just like, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing trans of color studies or critique or whatever it is and seeing what comes out of it. Like do it. <laughs> um, and I we had a great, I was just gonna say we had a great um, event last year where Rod and Riley uh, were on talking about about exactly those things, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope this work opens new questions, opens new avenues for other people to work in these areas. And, um, you know, what I've tried to do is challenge the whole idea of trans by thinking about trans of color as something else and thinking about um, trans and travesti and non-binary and two-spirit artists uh, together and uh, really to work for solidarity. Cause I feel like, like I said about, I feel like naming and categories are, are reducing <laughs> and a shutting down. I feel similarly about our political strategies that uh, I don't, I hope that we don't all just isolate into our very, very tiny categories that, you know, algorithms are providing us content for, but instead that we can work across uh, across boundaries. And that's what Anzaldu was trying to do. And that's what I'm trying to do. Well, you know, that's certainly one of the things that I take from your work is thinking about trans as an operation, not an identity. Um, you know, and that transness isn't something that necessarily belongs to transgender people, but that it's a strategy for 
moving through, you know, I think it was like, you know, the, the, the world that, you know, sort of Eurocentric modernity has created, you know, the world that has been colonized, the world that is like in the afterlife and in the wake of the, you know, chattel slavery system that, that um, colonization was built on. And I think about transness as the operation that allows us like the conceptual operation, the poetic operation, the political operation that allows us to reimagine the meanings of our bodies, to reimagine what flesh means, you know, to reimagine what bodies do the way you said. And, and to think about how do we trans, you know, with an asterisk, how do we like trans everything? How do we like move through the world as we have inherited it that is deadly for so many of us and point towards something beyond that, some otherwise. It's like that is a poetic operation of transing. And I, I said, I, I think a lot of the ways that I have started to think about it that way comes from my engagement with your work. So thank you so much for that. Well, I, I know we have to wrap up, but I really want to thank you because you mm -hmm. and Paisley Kara and I think it's Lisa Jean Moore in the intro to Women's Studies Quarterly mm -hmm. asked that question a, a long time ago mm -hmm. <laughs> about what operations mm -hmm. are, arise when we think about trans dash. Yeah, yeah right, right. So, so we asked the question and you gave the answer. So, so th th thank you. Well, we are gonna have to start wrapping up now. Uh, I just want to, um, I, I don't have to apologize to anybody whose questions was, wasn't answered today. It's like we got to all of them. Thank you for those questions. Susan, Olivia, Eli, Samir, and Spencer. Um, uh, I just want to give you a reminder to check the Mills College Performing Arts webpage for upcoming Trans Studies Speaker Series. And we are the Voices events, including... Um, Thursday, December 2nd at 5 p.m., Play and Pray with multimedia artist and curator Lila Weefer. Uh, I'll be in conversation with her there. And then there is also, before that, on Thursday, November 18th, 5 p.m., We Are the Voices event, Labor and the Conditions of Protest, Militancy, Representation, and Aesthetics with Toby Hazlitt and Rachel Kushner. Lots of thanks to, uh, to make as we wind down here. I wanted to thank the interpreters, um, um, uh, Mac and, oh, I can't read my own handwriting, Maria. Uh, thank you so much um, for your, your, your work tonight. Uh, thanks to all of the We Are The Voices crew, Michelle, Kirsten, Joshua, uh, people at Mills Performing Arts, Alex Zinzian, uh, thanks to Kristen Nelson, who's been working as my assistant uh, with the lead chair. Thank you, audience, for coming tonight. Thank you, especially Misha, for sharing your time and your wisdom and your brilliance with us. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode on WATV Radio. We appreciate you joining us and listening in. Have any questions about this podcast, any of our guests, or have topics that you'd like for us to explore for future programming? Feel free to reach us on our socials. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at WATV underscore Oak. And on Facebook, we're at WATV dot Oak. <laughs>